The following audio presentation has been split into two parts to accommodate the dwindling attention span of the average North American media consumer. Hi folks, welcome to Quarter Rest. I'm your bedazzled, bejeweled, bespectacled host, Joe Diaco. This week's guest is a music blogger who has for years now devoted himself to the thankless task of diving deep into the world of cover songs. He does it so you don't have to. His writing has appeared, and here I am quoting from his website bio, in The New Yorker, Spin, MTV, Vice, and Mojo. He's also been interviewed by some minor outlets like uh, NPR and The Wall Street Journal. But now, here he is finally appearing on Quarter Rest for his big break. It's Ray Paget, founder of the blog Cover Me and author of the forthcoming book, I'm Your Fan. Ray, welcome to the show. What what an intro! Thanks for having me. Have you ever had an intro like that? That might be uh, that might be the most extensive. <laughs> One for the record books, history books, textbooks. Yeah, I go on uh, I go on Sirius sometimes, and they just say the king of covers. But I kind of like your uh, extended version better. Would you like me to go back in afterward and add King of Covers in somehow? No. You don't like being the King of Covers? No, it's fine. But but what I joke about it is that there's no, no one is competing for that throne, right? So it's kind of a funny title as if like I really had to best a bunch of other challengers to become the King of Covers. No, it was pretty much there for the taking. It was not that hard. I've had the blog for over a decade, but honestly, I probably became the King of Covers within like a month or two just due to no one else doing it it's a good title i'm probably just gonna call you the cover guy because i mean that's what you are you're the cover guy also accurate so ray you started the blog cover me as you mentioned years ago as a college student that is true i was um going to school and it was on a term abroad um where i just ended up you know kind of with more time on my hands than i know what to do with and I, I started other various blogs. I'd already been writing about music, but I kind of got interested in cover songs. Um, and I had gotten interested in them because sort of through a, one of those rare like light bulb over the head moments, Bob Dylan used to host a show for a couple of years on uh, XM Radio. Hmm. And it was called Theme Time Radio Hour. And every week, I think it was weekly, every so often he would, it'd be like songs on a theme. So the theme would be, I don't know, dogs or something. And I listened to it, I enjoyed it. But one of the one time the theme was summer, and one of the songs Bob Dylan played was a version of the Gershwin song "Summertime," sure. which is one of the most covered songs ever. I'm sure I knew a bunch of versions, you know, it just because you do. People sing it, you know, at, if you go out to dinner or something. Yeah, it's a jazz standard. This, yeah, everyone sang it. It's Janis Joplin and just you know, like any jazz, like I, I said, dinner because it's like you know, piano jazz thing. Anytime you sort of go out to a bar like that. So I knew it, I guess. I didn't have any opinion on the song, really. But he played this version by um, Billy Stewart, who was a soul singer in the 60s. And, you know, I, all the versions I'd heard were kind of slow, jazzy, languid, relaxed. But this version, it was fast. It was loud. There was scatting. There were drum solos. And I was kind of listening to it thinking, like, I didn't know you could do this. Like, I didn't know you could take a song, a lyric, a melody, but, like, change everything about it. So that's like the first time I, you know, kind of became interested in covers and I thought, you know, what other covers do this? What else is out there that changes things that dramatically? And yeah, so then within a few months I had started just, you know, a fun blog to do in college, which uh, turns out continues to this day. Were there any other covers 
in those early days that interested you? Like after you kind of got the bug from listening to this particular version of Summertime? Yeah, there are two I remember. Um, one that was new and one that was new to me. The new to me one was actually one I ended up writing about in my first book about covers, um, which was Devo uh, covering Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, which is in that Billy Stewart vein, not genre wise, but in the sense of changing basically everything except the lyrics. So it's almost unrecognizable. And then the second that I remember being very early, I think cause it, I think this album came out the same year I started the blog, 20, 2007, was Patti Smith, who I was just coincidentally getting into at the same time released an album of of covers and she did this version of smells like teen spirit Hmm. that was like basically kind of americana bluegrass there was a banjo involved um and i remember that kind of jumping out at me too so those were and i think those are probably some of the early covers i even posted on the site back when it was like a rinky dink blog spot but i remember those two being early discoveries of mine smells like teen spirit has been covered a few times it's kind of an interesting one to play around with. Yeah, and Patty Smith was by no means the first person to have the idea of cover teen spirit but make it quiet or slow or, you know, something radically different. That was just the first version I heard. But like Tori Amos in the 90s did like a slow piano ballad version. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, that was, you know, that was well known. I just didn't know it at the time. But yeah, there's a million smells like teen spirit. And pretty much if you type smells like teen spirit, plus and then just pick a genre name into google or youtube they, I, it'll exist i guarantee it will exist but which is interesting because it's it's actually i don't think it's probably the easiest song to reinvent the chord progression is very particular well i think one reason it might be appealing to so many artists like this is that you know it it's that song and nirvana generally were kind of often made fun of a little bit because it was hard to understand the words um, and so I've you know seen people reference any number of different covers of that song, but with sort of saying the same thing, which is, oh, now I know what the lyrics are. So, you know, I don't know if that's why everyone covered it, but I do think that's kind of an appealing thing is no one knows the words exactly until they hear a cover of it. I think uh, Weird Al, when he did his parody, kind of made fun of that fact as well. Yeah, there was, there was a line about having marbles in his mouth. And I remember when he's <laughs> in the video, he actually has marbles coming out of his mouth while he's pretending to be Kurt Cobain. I interviewed Al for my first book, not about that specifically, about his like polka covers. But but yeah, I, uh, I remember that. <laughs> he, he got, as I recall, he got Kurt Cobain's blessing. And I, the story, I think, is that he called Kurt Cobain you know, backstage at SNL saying, you know, hey, uh, it's Weird Al, I want to parody one of your songs. And Kurt said, oh, you know, is it about food? Because a lot of Weird Al's early parodies, Eat yes. and stuff, were food related. And so Weird Al says, is it going to be about food? Yeah. And, and, um, and Al says, no, it's going to be about how no one can understand your lyrics. And then Kurt uh, was silent for five seconds. And he said, yeah, that's pretty funny. Okay. <laughs> were you looking for a niche to discover? Is that part of why you, you started the blog on cover songs? Or was it just like oh, I'm really interested in cover songs now. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to write about covers. I really like covers. Was it was it a, a labor of love or was it also a little bit of like, hmm, nobody else is blogging about this. This is kind of an interesting angle. I don't know if you're trying to find a surefire career path, starting a blog spot about cover songs would be a great way to do it. No, it was a labor of love. Um, and again, it was just in college. It wasn't, I was, what was I, I think junior year. So I, early junior year. So I wasn't even really thinking about 
job or anything. It was just I had some downtime. And, you know, I did that all of my extracurriculars. I ran the music magazine there. I did a radio show. And I'd had at least one other blog before about some other music thing. So it was just sort of my impulses. If I like something, I you know, I want to blog about it or do a radio show or something. So it was not at all my desire niche. And, you know, even at the time, it was just one. I mean, it's still one interest among many, but now it's a main interest. At the time, it was just like, oh, I like this. I'll do another blog, you know, on the side of this first blog. So it was totally sort of surprising to me when it found an audience and eventually other writers. And, you know, I never would have predicted I'd still be doing it a decade. What is it? 12 years, I think, later. But here you are. Here I am. Do you ever get sick of talking and thinking about covers? Not yet. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So you're not like a doctor who like doesn't want to talk about people's health and downtime. The amazing thing about covers, I mean, which would be true in other areas of music too, but certainly in the world of covers is that there's always more to discover. Like, you know, we joke that I'm the cover guy, I'm the king of covers, right? But what tiny fraction of the covers that exist in the world do I know? Even if it's more than anyone else, it's still, I don't know, 1%, 2%, probably not even that, Yeah. Um, which is kind of, you know, amazing. And even, you know, people will, a lot of times, you know, people find out I do this cover song thing, like everyone wants to share their favorite cover, which is always fun. And if it's, you know, well-known or by a well-known artist, I'm likely to know it, but half the time, maybe, I, I don't know it. It's new to me. And so then, you know, I go home and I listen to it. And so that's, I think, why it hasn't gotten old is that there's still so much more that, you know, I learn every day about this world. We are going to talk about favorite covers, so. Okay, good. I'm glad to know that this isn't a topic that you're tired of. No, I love it. You've got a book coming out called I'm Your Fan, and this is for 33 and a half. And a third, like the vinyl record, the speed the vinyl records would go at. So you've got this book coming out for 33 and a third. Can you just maybe explain what 33 and a third is? Yeah, 33 and a third is a series of music books that are each small, you know, I don't know if they literally fit in your pocket, but they'd be, if you had a big pocket, they would, and about one album. So there, it's been going on for, I don't know, a decade? It's certainly a while. So there's one I, on I think, My Beautiful Dark. I think about 15 years, actually. I think going yeah, back okay, to like 2004 so, or something like that. Yeah, I think the yeah, first one, I believe, is Warren Zanes doing uh, Dusty in Memphis. But then, yeah, there's ones on all genres. Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, you know, Born in the USA, Thriller, I think. Um, so, yeah, so I've read, I haven't read all of them. There's like 100, but I've read plenty of them and I enjoy them. And I sort of always had the idea uh, that I'd like to do one. And I ended up sort of coming into it maybe in the reverse of how many people do who presumably pick an album and then decide they want to write a book on it. I kind of decided I wanted to write the book and then picked the album, meaning that I wanted to write a book about tribute albums because I'd written a book about cover songs, which came out in 2017. And like the one, it covered, it was like the whole history of cover songs. So it covered a lot. The one area it didn't really cover is tribute albums, which is like a big area, a big piece of the world of covers, but it didn't fit into that book. But like a book on tribute albums just generally seemed a little nebulous. And so I soon had the idea of, I want to do a book about tribute albums, but I'll do it through the lens of one specific tribute album, which would be the sort of thing a 33 and a third book would be. You pick one album, but then if you want, which I did, you can really expand beyond it. So then, of course, 
the task was to pick, you know, which tribute album to do. And of course I know hundreds and it just, I just had to sort of narrow it down piece by piece until I landed on I'm your fan. So first of all, I want to just uh, tell you, I, I love the book. It's a lot of fun. It is probably the book on tribute albums. I learned so much about the history of the tribute album medium just from reading this book. And it's very short. It's a nice breezy read. And it's also like a who's who of all the best musicians from like the 70s to let's say the mid to late 90s. There's just so many names, so much name dropping going on in this book. It was really a delight to read and I learned a lot uh, about different covers and, and different connections between artists that I did not know about, like anything about. Before we go on too much further, let's just establish the book is about I'm Your Fan, which is a tribute album that came out in the early 90s as a tribute to Leonard Cohen. Consider it confirmed, but the reason... You know, I think there's a couple reasons I picked that one. As I said earlier, there's a lot of tribute albums I could have picked, right? So I first, like, came up with a list of all the tribute albums I knew, which was hundreds. Then I narrowed it down to all the tribute albums I actually liked, since part of the interesting thing to me about tribute albums, right, is that it's a really inconsistent format. Like, even the good ones often have some really terrible tracks and they sort of never add up to or rarely add up to more than the sum of their parts. Like if more of the covers on a tribute album are good than are bad, you know, that's you call it a win. But still, even so, I like a lot of tribute albums. So that was still a pretty long list. But then I, you know, was starting to think about what tribute albums, you know, were early, were kind of formative in the genre. And now the list is getting shorter. And then what really landed me on I'm Your Fan, the sort of final criteria was what tribute albums have made a concrete impact on music history. Not a general one. A whole lot of tribute albums will say things like, you know, they had helped them reach a new audience or it expanded their profile or it revived their career, which is often true, but it's, and is actually true for this one too. But I was looking for something like specific where kind of tangible, where you could almost prove the impact a tribute album had on music history. And there's only, I only basically found two. One of which was a tribute album that came out a few years later called Common Thread, which reunited the Eagles, but I didn't have a whole lot of interest in writing a whole book about. And then this one and the sort of elevator pitch of I'm Your Fan's impact on music history is it is responsible for the Leonard Cohen song Hallelujah becoming as famous as it is today. We will talk about Hallelujah. I am sure we will. <laughs> Inevitably. Um, is this your favorite tribute album or is this one of your favorites? It's one of my favorites. Um, I, where it's funny, we're actually for this for Cover Me the website, sort of you know to tie into the book. We're doing a big project where we're gonna do a list of like the I don't know how many it'll be probably fifty best tribute albums ever. Um, you know, in probably do it in a month or so. We're sort of starting work on it now. And given how many tribute albums I've listened to before this and for the book, you know, I I know which ones are, I put them in like three, literally three iTunes folders. Good mixed and bad but you'd think i'd like have my ranking down and i don't because and partly because of what i'm saying about how they're so sort of there's this weird inconsistent format where like 
a tribute album often even the good ones don't like hold up as like a totemic you know single album experience like most albums do you know a good album is greater than every song added together equals x there's there's something else whereas tribute album is really not like that even i'm your fan which overall i think is very good has some weaker songs has you know it's not a super consistent listen from every track to every other track so yeah it's definitely one of my favorites i think it's one of the best ones but it's not like this is my all-time favorite above all else because i i haven't even figured out what that would be yet it changes day to day i was going to ask if you had a favorite do you have like maybe a top three i have a top um looking at this folder of good tribute albums i have a top 140 i i came up with a top 25 which i have somewhere i haven't done anything with it yet i might do it as part of this project so i came up with like 25 but even there there were so many great ones that i had to leave out that i, I was kind of torn interesting so are you a leonard cohen fan yeah i'm a big leonard cohen fan which was part of the reason especially when it was i like i say there were two that i sort of landed on is like concrete impact and i don't have a strong opinion about the eagles one way or the other whereas i am a big leonard cohen fan and that was one of the reasons i picked this one of the two so you're not like the dude in the big lebowski in that you do not fucking hate the eagles but you just don't love them <laughs> i don't know if i have quite that strong an opinion but i don't i don't actively seek out eagles music certainly <laughs> and and this and the tribute album I, I do end up writing about it in the book because it was it was one of like the biggest biggest tribute album hits yeah, you spent ever. a couple pages on it yeah, so it, it it's important, and you know any sort of important tribute album comes up in the book, and I interviewed the producer, you know the guy who sort of came up with the idea. It's you know it's a bunch of '90s sort of pop country stars, um, you know all the big names from country music more or less in the '90s covering the Eagles songs. So you know it's it's fine. I don't I don't love it, but it's um I don't I don't hate it either. It's perfectly pleasant. But yeah, I'm 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 a Leonard Cohen fan. Um, so that's sort of one thing that drove me in that direction. So I was a little nervous going into reading the book that it would hold my interest because I'm not a big Leonard Cohen fan. Let me just briefly outline my, my relationship to Leonard Cohen. So I live in Canada. As you doubtless know, Leonard Cohen is Canadian and he holds an exalted place in the music world in Canada. I think he's probably considered by many to be on the same tier as Bob Dylan. I think he's definitely more beloved here than probably anywhere else. Much like I've heard Nick Cave is like a huge deal in Australia, like uh, beyond just the, the, the people you would expect to be fans, like everybody kind of worships these figures a little bit because they're, you know, hometown heroes. So I really didn't know Leonard Cohen's music at all until moving to Canada. I'm originally from uh, Vermont, which is where you are as well. And uh, so I learned a lot of Leonard Cohen songs from playing, from singing in a choir at the college I went to. We would do like a pop show every year and we would often cover a lot of Leonard Cohen songs. So some of these songs uh, that are covered on the album, I only know from that. Do you remember which songs, which songs you guys covered? Um, so we definitely did Hallelujah, of course. We did uh, First We Take Manhattan. And I'm struggling. There was another one, and I'm struggling to think of what it was. Um, none of the really old ones. For whatever reason, we did a lot of the like '80s. Yeah, those are both 
rel- not super late, but relatively late. Yeah, those are from his 80s synth-heavy era, which I personally don't care for. Yeah, so those were both covered on this album, the tribute album that we're discussing. And I really don't know his early music at all. I mean, I've heard little bits and pieces of it, like his old stuff from the 60s and 70s. But um, but it was interesting to listen through some of these songs and and kind of get to know them a little bit. Do you have a favorite Leonard Cohen period or a favorite song or a favorite album? Yeah, my f- it changes a little bit, but I'd say... I have two favorite Leonard Cohen periods. One is actually the period you're kind of talking about, the 80s, which is partly a period that I like because like so many sort of aging, you know, 60s songwriters, he like went a little too deep into 80s music and modern production techniques that sound dated just like the next year. You know, there's a lot of drum machines. There's a lot of very cheap sounding synthesizers, which I kind of find endearing. Um you know, like including both songs you mentioned. First, we take Manhattan, where I think it kind of works and kind of sounds cool, and the original version of Hallelujah, where it extremely does not work to have, like, an incredibly cheesy 80s production. I mean, the original version of Hallelujah is rough if you actually go back and listen to it. Um, and then the second the second period was, you know, this sort of latter day comeback in, you know, the last, whatever it was, five years or so of his life, where he sort of not only was writing great songs, but I think not for the first time, but for the first time in a while, kind of nailed the production in sort of a classy Leonard Cohen way, not the 80s stuff, or then, you know, 90s. He did some sort of, you know, trying to be modern with the early days of like digital recording, and that sounded a little iffy too. So the last, his last like three albums, you know, when he was doing the comeback tour, or I guess my other, my other favorite period. Yeah, so I agree with you on Hallelujah. The original version of that song, I I don't like it at all. No, it's amazing that it became, and it's both amazing it became such a hit, but also it's not surprising it took other people covering it to make it a hit. When you hear that original, you're like, oh yeah, like this is this is a rough listen. Well, for one thing, I mean, I think everybody's kind of familiar with the melody, but he barely sings. I mean, he basically just talks his way through the song. Secondly, the the production is not great. Here's what I don't really like that much about Leonard Cohen. I'm not a big fan of his singing. I'm not a huge fan of his voice. It's it's interesting, it's different. I like I like interesting and different. I just I like it more. <laughs> I don't like it as much on him as I do on others. I like Tom Waits a lot. I like some Dylan a lot. Um for whatever reason Leonard Cohen has just never never quite grabbed me. But I think he was a great songwriter. And I think that's that it's not surprising that so many of his songs have been covered and kind of elevated by other, in my opinion, more capable singers. So I have to give him credit, and I, I certainly don't hate Leonard Cohen. I don't want to create that impression. You know, not, he's not one of my top 10 favorite artists or anything like that. I agree with you also about First We Take Manhattan. I do think it works. I do think the cheesy production works on that song. And I really liked R.E.M.'s cover as well on the, uh, on the tribute album. Yeah, R.E.M.'s cover is great. Um, and in, in a way, it it's not like one of the ones that's the most different on that album. It's different enough, but still sort of retains some of the spirit of the original. But for those people, it's one of those where for those people for whom, unlike us, even the 80s-ness of 
first we take Manhattan was too much coming out of Leonard Cohen. They made it, you know, it's a little more timeless. It's it sounds like R. It sounds like an REM song without a huge lift on their part. And the, you know what you were saying about Leonard Cohen's voice. The well, funny thing is, to some degree, I think Leonard Cohen would have agreed with you. Like he was always sort of joking about how he basically couldn't sing, and so he sort of talks through all all of his songs or a lot of them which i personally like i like his voice quite a bit but like when i the one time i saw him um yeah you know in one of his final years he does tower of song one of his big hits and there's a line in there about where he says i was born with the gift of a golden voice and it, and it was like a laugh line like it was like an in joke <laughs> with the audience because like everyone knows including leonard cohen that he was not born with the gift of a golden voice which is why covers have you know, as I go into in the book, which is one reason covers have been so important to him, not just this 91 album, but back, you know, since his earliest days, covers kind of have made Leonard Cohen to some degree the icon he became. Yeah, so Leonard Cohen sort of got his start as a songwriter who was essentially covered by others. Yeah, in before he even released any of his own material, he had had several covers out, including most notably Judy Collins, who kind of and I had I'd vaguely known, you know, she did had some big Leonard Cohen covers before the book, but I hadn't quite known the chronology. I mean, she basically gave him a career in the same yeah. way that like Joan Baez gave Bob Dylan a career. Right. Judy Collins, you know, recorded I think three of his song of Leonard Cohen's songs, including Suzanne, which became a big hit, before Leonard Cohen had recorded anything. And, you know, like Bob Dylan, other people have had bigger hits with his songs than him pretty much for his entire career, largely because of what you're saying in terms of his vocal delivery being acquired taste. Then you add on, you know, questionable production choices. But, you know, for sort of every step of the way, which is part of what I was interested in the book, covers have like elevated Leonard Cohen's music to audiences far beyond what he ever got with his own recordings of it. And to an extent, that's also true of Bob Dylan. Yeah, to a big extent. And a, lo a lot of a lot of great artists, I'm thinking Willie Nelson as well, has written a lot of songs that were sung maybe more mm -hmm. famously by others, at least initially. That's another vo voice that I suppose could be considered an acquired taste, although I, I quite like Willie Nelson's singing. I like Willie Nelson too. But yeah, he was, I mean, I think early on, one small difference, I guess, is that I think early on, some of the those Willie Nelson hits, he was like writing either for others or writing and then sort of aggressively yeah. pitching them, you know, to get other Shopping people. Shopping both, yeah. both Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan wanted to record this stuff themselves. And I'm sure would prefer if they had had, you know, big hits with their own versions. But like Bob Dylan has had, his songs have gone to number one five or six times, whatever the number is, but none of them in his own recordings. He's right. never had a number one hit with his own recordings, but various covers, starting with like the birds and, you know, all the way through recent years. The Beatles covered him a lot. Yeah. Every, I mean, everyone, you know, covered Bob Dylan a lot. In many cases, had bigger hits than <laughs> Bob Dylan ever did. And we'll come back to some of those. This episode is sponsored by AquaSuck, the vacuum sealed water company that cares. Tired of drinking water from a bottle or can like some kind of dinosaur junior? Order some of AquaSuck's Aquapacks and experience the water of the 21st century. With their patented Sucknology, AquaSuck has truly disrupted the water distribution industry. Now here's how it works. Download the AquaSuck app for your mobile device. Enter your name, address, and so on. When you're done with that, swipe left if you're feeling refreshed 
and swipe right if you're feeling thirsty. It's really that easy. For every swipe right, an aqua pack will be delivered by drone to your front door. Just open up the tight vacuum sealed packaging, pour the delicious vacuum water into a tall stock pot and boil for at least two hours. You're really gonna wanna boil a lot longer than that. Two hours is kind of a minimum. Now, let cool to room temperature and enjoy. For best results, you might wanna add some non-vacuum water to kinda mellow out that flavor. I've been using this service for the last few weeks and I think I've got the hang of it. All right, let's give it a try. Ooh boy, it's got a burning aftertaste. Don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> but you can taste the other stuff that was in the vacuum. I don't like drinking vacuum water. I, I don't want any more. Best of all, for every aqua pack you purchase, aqua suck, cause why the f not? So let's uh, let's talk about the book a little bit. I don't want to, you know, give away the whole book because it's it's not that long, and I, I want people to have the incentive to go out and read it. But can we talk a little bit about? So the book really kind of chronicles the history of the tribute album. Just for those who maybe aren't super familiar with this medium, could you just like very briefly run through like what is a tribute album, what is its history, and like what is its purpose? Sure. So the sort of brief definition of a tribute album is it is an album in which a bunch of different artists cover one artist. Um, so, for instance, we're talking about I'm Your Fan has 20 or 20 some odd people covering Leonard Cohen. There's, you know, a million tribute albums to the Beatles or Dylan or whoever. And the history is, again, something I didn't know at all until writing the book. It's kind of a in music, in recorded music history, a relatively recent phenomenon it kind of got a start, you know, the wheel started spinning in the 80s with a producer named Hal Wilner, um, late, great Hal Wilner. He unfortunately passed um, of COVID-19 this spring, but he was a huge, like a legend in the music business. Even he was the, he did music on Saturday Night Live, like for 40 years up till his death. But he invented the tribute album, basically having the idea and I interviewed him a lot for the book, the idea of like, how can we, how, how can I put a variety show like you might see on TV, like incidentally Saturday night live. Um, how can I do that in a musical form where it's just like a whole bunch of different sounds and different artists and stuff with some through line. And so first one he did was extremely esoteric. It was to um, the composer for Fellini films in the early eighties. Then he did once to Kurt Weill. He did once to a couple jazz people like Thelonious Monk. And none of these were like massive, smash, huge. You know, they're all a little esoteric. But he got people, bands like Blondie, you know, and Tom Waits to be on these. That's impressive. They were, it's, he, this guy has a Rolodex like nothing else. He's got next week, he's got his final, his final tribute album, as far as anyone knows, um, posthumously coming out and it's got like kesha on it oh, wow. and u2 it's to yeah who, who is it tributing t-rex so it's kind of i mean they're not quite as obscure as fellini's composer you know t-rex was a big band in their day but still compared to like u2 you know he's getting these big artists to cover an artist that you know was big but maybe younger people don't know or whatever but so yeah, anyway so this is turning to sort of the long history sorry i'll speed it up he he invented it. So Hal Wilner invents him in the 80s. 
slowly other people by the early 90s start the ball gets rolling and that's where i'm your fan comes in is as part of this history where other people start doing them it tends to be smaller labels or like nme the british music magazine did a couple very early um this i'm your fan ended up it came out like a couple french magazine editors did it but then there was enough success from albums like I'm Your Fan that were kind of put together, you know, on a shoestring budget without a whole lot of promotion that all of a sudden it kind of exploded in like the 90s um, with major labels getting involved. You talk, We talked about that Eagles one that's kind of early in the just huge, massive push of these things. And I think a lot of people, when they hear tribute albums, they think the 90s because um, there was just a lot of money being pushed in this and you know to some degree it's continued that way to this day like they're not quite as prominent in sort of the culture or you know in like a record label marketing as they were then but there are certainly every bit as many today that came out with like i'm talking about this t-rex one with massive artists so it's it sort of has never abated, even though, you know, I think their sort of pin, pinnacle of cultural saturation was probably the 90s. And this album, I'm Your Fan, the Leonard Cohen tribute, this was put out by a French magazine. Do you want to attempt to say the name of the, of the magazine? I don't, but I'll try anyway. I think it's called Les Inroctibles. I don't speak French, but that's how they said it in my American accent. My wife is French. I asked her how it's pronounced, and she says, I'm going to attempt it myself, Les Inrocoptibles, which is, like, so uncomfortable to say. Apparently, even to a French person, not easy to pronounce. And according to her... It's a word they made up. Yeah, of course. And according to her, it's a play on incorruptibles. Yes. Uh, which makes sense, but oh my goodness, that's not a fun word to pronounce. It's Or spell. I mean, how many times did I have to write it for the book? And every time I had to like go look it up to figure out, because it's, it's less L-E-S, so just the, but then the, it's just one word for the rest, and it's a long word. And so every time I was like, how, rock, R, T, P, it was, and I, I still, if, if, you t- if you made me write it right now, I might misspell it. I, I would probably be able to spell it, but that's the only time I'm going to be pronouncing it today. <laughs> So I had never heard of this magazine, but apparently this was like in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s. This was compared to uh, Rolling Stone in the 60s, just in terms of how vital it was as a, as a, you know, as a music magazine, as a cultural promoter. And you say they released a couple of tribute albums. Yeah, they, yeah. So you're right. It was basically these two guys, these two French guys, young guys kind of were... You know, they read Rolling Stone, they read the British music magazines, NME and various whatever else was out there at the time. Um, Maybe Spin existed then from the States. And they basically wanted to create a version for French in the French language. And because there was no competition, it pretty quickly took off. And it's still going today. Um, One of them is no longer with it, but it's going, and as far as I can tell, going strong. um, If you're, you know, a French-speaking music consumer. And yeah, they did a couple tribute albums, um, although less than they'd hoped. One of the sort of interesting stories I learned in the research for this was I, I interviewed a bunch of other tribute album producers, and so many of them were like, it is such a labor of love because it is such a pain in the butt to do these things. It is just a logistical nightmare. You're dealing with 20 different artists. They may all have managers. They may all have lawyers. You have to figure out how, where they're going to record, studios, etc. Um, and 
To some degree, because they were so early to the trend, these two French magazine editors, despite not having, you know, they knew some artists from doing interviews, but they weren't like, you know, really connected to the music business. They had a surprisingly easy time. They like, you know, reached out to Michael Stipe and reached out to the Pixies and various other bands. And they're like, yeah, okay. And then they, you know, sent him in a recording a month or two later. And then in subsequent years, they tried to do many more. And they got one or two through. Um, there was a Serge Gainsbourg one like a decade later. But so many times they said it just sort of fell apart because once tribute albums became big business, it became very difficult for you know small, scrappy operations like theirs to replicate what they did with I'm Your Fan. It seems like they had an easy time with I'm Your Fan because they were so early to the game and because they had so little competition. Like It just seems like they were a big deal because they were one of the few magazines that was promoting these bands in continental Europe, or at least in France. And so the bands that they promoted a lot kind of appreciated that because, hey, they're introducing a new market to their music. So the bands were pretty like willing to go along with it. But it seems like as the format picked up steam through the 90s, maybe in part because of the success of albums like I'm Your Fan, like there was a lot of um, the suits kind of got in the way, kind of took over the business and I, there are a couple kind of sad stories in the book about these labors of love that kind of got destroyed or that kind of were hampered at some point by, let's just say, the uh, the corrupting influence of money and business and art. Yeah, that, that happened a lot. Um, there was one specific one, one of the early ones I discovered was there was a producer named Terry Token. Um, who was a big music manager and stuff. And he, in the end of the 80s, right around the same time, kind of the er when other people were just starting to do tribute albums, he did this amazing tribute album to Neil Young. He got like Sonic Youth and various other bands that were, you know, really, really sort of bubbling up at the time. And, you know, he sort of also said it was work, but, you know, he knew these people. It wasn't it wasn't that hard. So he, the next one he decided to do, oh, I'm going to do a Grateful Dead one. That'll be my next one. So he starts working and he's the Grateful Dead are involved. And, you know, he's sort of getting the ball rolling. He's talking to artists about doing it. And they said, all of a sudden, the Grateful Dead's office just like ghosted him. They they stopped returning his calls. They kind of disappeared. He was like, well, what's happening? I'm you know, they're supposed to be involved in this and they're not doing it. They, you know, they're not answering my calls anymore. <laughs> And he later discovered that they basically took the idea to a bigger label. Um, you know, one or I think he said one or two of the artists that ended up on the eventual compilation, which was called Dedicated and came out in 91, you know, were people he had suggested or had in mind. Um, and after that, he said the hell with it. Um, and he didn't do another tribute album. And, you know, The Bridge is one of, if you're talking about the early, if you come up with 10 or 15 early influential tribute albums, it would be on most lists. But yeah, the guy behind it, just got so frustrated by sort of seeing his idea, you know, taken by a bigger label that he just didn't do another one since. And didn't they take the name too? Yeah. He said dedicated spelled, you know, dead D E A D <laughs> was what he was going to call it. That's cold. That's ice cold. He was, he was, he was clearly, I mean, I'm talking to him, you know, decades later, but he was clearly still sore about it. Um, and fair enough. He'd put in a lot of work and like they'd come to him because of, his success with this Neil Young one, but like after a certain point, they were like, oh, now there's, you know, bigger fish in the sea. So yeah, they just kind of dumped him. Yeah, I guess, you know, the suits, as it were, kind of found that there was money in this sort of wacky concept and 
decided to uh, make the money themselves. The same thing actually happened to the guy who ended up producing the Grateful, the Grateful Dead tribute album that did come out, who he himself was not involved in the takeover. He didn't even know about it until I talked to him, but he was just an independent producer. But then a couple of years later, he came up with the idea for that Eagles tribute album because um, he had read he'd read a quote in I think Rolling Stone where Garth Brooks basically said, if the Eagles were around now, you know, they would just be a sort of pop country band. He was like, Oh yeah, they are a pop country band. I'll do a pop country tribute album. And he did a lot of the work on it, but then through various sort of legal label machinations, you know, Irving Azoff was involved. Who's I think still the Beatles, the Eagles like superstar manager. Anyway, he ended up not producing the final thing um, in the end. And again, he was <laughs> still kind of sore about his idea kind of being taken away. What do you like about tribute albums? It is a fairly divisive format, right? And when I, I mean, prior to reading your book, I have to say you've definitely opened my eyes a little bit about tribute albums. But prior to reading this book, if you talked about tribute albums to me, I would think, okay, yeah, those are those like weird CDs that they used to sell that were like a bunch of people covering someone and there's maybe like one good song on each one. Okay. I mean, I've never purchased a, a tribute album in my life. Obviously, you've listened to a number of them. But wh- what do you what do you defend about the tribute album? Because you said multiple times in the book, I will defend the tribute album. I like tribute albums. I mean, acknowledging that not all of them are good. But w- what makes a, a good tribute album good? Or what, what makes the tribute album worthy of defense and worthy of preservation? That's a great question. So I would say a couple things. First is one reason I love the tribute album is kind of its promise. And that ties into what you're just saying. Everything you just said critical about the tribute album is true, right? There are a million tribute albums where like they're mostly bad and maybe there's one good track or they're all bad or they're just misguided. But I love the idea of like a bunch of bands, hopefully disparate bands from different genres. That's sort of what I particularly like, you know, honoring an influence a favorite songwriter. Sometimes it's like an iconic songwriter like Leonard Cohen. Sometimes it's a bunch of bands who are more famous, you know, elevating someone they love who people don't know. Like there was a tribute album I just wrote about for something else in the 90s to Rocky Erickson, who was like, you know, beloved cult sort of psych rock guy from Texas who musicians loved, but like he was, he's not famous. And all the musicians on that tribute album were like ZC Top, like way bigger bands. Um, and so, but the, these are guys who were who were fans of, of Rocky right, Erickson. and think he needs a bigger, yeah, and think he needs a bigger audience. Um, and there, I mean, there's so many tribute albums like that where it sort of serves to elevate an artist who's not super famous. Um, and so in terms of the, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, but the feel good spirit of what a tribute album can do. Those I think are, you know, really show the promise in some ways, just because they can be huge for an artist who's maybe beloved as sort of a cult act, but not super famous. They can be huge, both in terms of their fame specifically, or their acclaim or whatever in a general way, but specifically in terms of finances, like that Rocky Erickson tribute album, he was, you know, sort of, if people know him, it might be because he was kind of, you know, had mental health issues his entire life. And in that case, it was literally a benefit to raise money for him, um, for his medical bills. Um, and there's, that sounds like a very specific 
circumstance, but it's actually not. There's that's kind of a neat a neat a subgenre of tribute albums. It's tribute albums that are put together to raise money um, for someone who needs money. There was an Alejandro Escovedo one when you know he came down with the disease. There's just a bunch of them. There was one to one of the um, replacements like two or three years ago. And so that's, you know, because of if the person wrote the songs, they're going to get the publishing money. And, you know, that can be sort of an intro that 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 was like a just a a little niche I sort of found interesting and kind of makes you feel good. If you're someone who's cynical about tribute albums, which there is a lot of reason to be, Lord knows, um, I think that's that shows how they can kind of serve a higher purpose sometimes. Cliffhanger. 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 Woo. And that is part one of the episode with Ray Paget. Make sure to check in next week for part two. It's a doozy. And in the meantime, why don't you check out Ray's book? It's part of the 33 and a third series. You've heard us talking about it. I don't need to say anything more. Go check it out. Preferably not on Amazon. I mean... Check it out on Amazon if you must. Just avoid Amazon. Avoid Amazon.